special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now, you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Khan and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews of VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, Everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of what we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, Abby. Hey, Robin. How are you? I'm terrific. It's summertime. I know. It feels so nice. The weather's good. People are happier. Everything's a little bit more relaxed. feels nice. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're missing Angela. She's off at a sporting tournament. And so, you know, we're, we miss her, but I'm excited to have this conversation with you. And this is actually a requested topic. That's right, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So we had um, a listener um, share an article that they read and shared it with us to get our opinion on it. And I think that's great. And if listeners out there have ideas, feel free to share things with us and we're happy to comment on it or somehow integrate um, the topic into our discussions. So this article came from the May-June publication of the ASHA um, magazine. And ASHA is the... um, American Speech and Language Hearing Association. And this person that shared it with me is a speech pathologist, and it's all about um, ableism in the autism community. Right. And it's a good example, I think, of a specific disability group topic, which sometimes I think we have shied away from. And I think it's a this is a great chance to kind of dive into a specific discussion. Yeah. And we've talked about ableism in the past. So we've touched upon it, I think in the Paralympics, maybe um, I'm sure in another um, podcast. And just to remind the listeners, um, so ableism is defined as a set of beliefs or practices that devalues or discriminates against people with a physical, intellectual, psychiatric disability, and often rests on the assumption that disabled people need to be fixed in one form or the other. Yeah, so the definition that you gave is from a specific organization called the Center for Disability Rights, and I think it's important to note that um, there probably isn't one set definition for ableism, and this article is talking specifically about the CDR's kind of like uh, vantage point on it, and I think it's a really good definition because it does talk specifically about this idea about the assumption of needing to be fixed, and that's really our connection to special ed because special education uh inherently is based in the fix-it model. So I think that's like big idea that we just want to absorb for a minute for people who are listening to this podcast is this idea 
that the field we went into has an inherent bias within it, which is the remediation um, of deficits associated with a disability. And we've talked a lot about this before when we think about eligibility, that you actually have to have an identified disability, not be making effective progress, need specially designed instruction. Everybody who's listening to this podcast has like walked their way through that flowchart, I'm sure, at some point. And so our field is unaligned with this definition. And you could argue broadly that our field is ableist in its entire orientation. And that's just like a big take a breath, think about it for a moment uh, idea. That's such a cool connection that you made because one of the things that they talk about in this article, and then of course, you know, not just this article, but other things that we found while we were researching this topic is that um, one of the ways that you get around this fix-it approach is changing your language, making sure the the student or the person is centered in the decision-making, making sure that you are Um, aligned with the family's goals and vision for their family and their child um, as you're providing interventions? And how do you do that in a way that is respectful and doesn't take away um, the really cool characteristics of autistic people? Absolutely. And what I would say is that language is a reflection of our belief systems, right? It doesn't go the other way around just because you uh, change your language, it doesn't mean your belief system has changed, right? And so, but when your belief system has changed, your language will follow suit. And so I think it's important just to to think about this because as we have sometimes decade-long relationships with families, at the outset, when we're meeting people, our first impression and our language choices um, matter. And they matter to how particularly parents get set to interact with the school system to support their kid. And so the reality is that as professionals, it's okay that our field historically was based in this fix-it mentality. It doesn't have to stay there forever. That's the good news. Um, But the way it would evolve towards a more um, supportive stance is if we're all tuning in individually and and over the long haul. And the other message too, I think, is that in any of this um, change stuff, people make mistakes and screw up all the time. Nobody's perfect. And so the idea for this conversation isn't to say like, oh, hey, here's what you're supposed to say now. And if you said something a different way last year, that was bad, right? That's not the stance, I think a professional's obligation is to always be learning and thinking about these big ideas and think about how they change their practice, right? So for me, when I read this article, I thought like, oh, this is a good reminder because as a special ed director, I can get into the fix-it mentality pretty heavily. And then I'm modeling that for teachers, staff, and parents, right? So I think that's an interesting thing. Um, yeah, this has certainly been like a philosophical change. And we lived through this in the nineties with the person first language, right? That was not something that was part of our education when we went into this field. And I would say probably four or five, six years into the field was when advocates started, um, shifting the language then to say a a person with a disability rather than a blind person, person who is visually impaired, really saying like this disability does not make up their entire identity. And so now we're really shifting 
and flip-flopping that to say for some autistic people, they really believe that the autism is not separated from their identity. And that's just a philosophical shift that we may have to live through now. Yep. I think that's true. And I, 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 when I originally was thinking about this, I was thinking maybe it's like the field is evolving linearly into this new language. And I actually think it's different. I think it's probably like separating into separate streams and channels, right? Where some people feel more comfortable with this type of um, descriptor and other people feel uh, comfortable with a different descriptor. And I guess from my vantage point, if I'm coming to work every day, trying to support kids, then I'm generally speaking fine with that. And my skill set has to be to ask, what would you prefer and then make a genuine effort to use that language when I'm dealing with that person and also to remember it uh, and also to not become so rigid that then I can't shift gears when I meet someone else who has a different preference. And I guess that's a change in our field. And I think that's something people need to think about a little bit. I also think it's important to understand that the next generation of young people um, with autism may see things differently than this generation does. And that's a really interesting thing to think about. The adults lived through this whole um, like medical model of um, autism. And these adults are the students that we taught yep. 20 years ago. But the other thing that they say in terms of um, language that I think is important for special educators to think about is this idea of um services sounding like a more medical model rather than education, support, teaching, instruction. And again, when you use that type of language, you really do focus on learning, growing, developing rather than services, which could be, again, more tied to fixing disability, changing, things like that. Yeah. And you're bringing up um, the C word, cure. And, um, I think the reality is that for many parents, when they um, come to understand that their child has a disability, they look for a cure. And that's a, that's not a bad decision or something that is um, not to be taken seriously. And I think our perspective as people who work alongside parents as they're going through a process of understanding their student's disability is to help people maybe sometimes let go of that Um, energy around curing the disability and really thinking about um, how to kind of embrace their student's profile. And I don't know about you, Robin, but I've certainly seen over the years that the kids with um, parents who are able to embrace their profile and step away from the cure approach while still being very strong advocates for their children getting what they need, um, that those kids tend to have better outcomes and they tend to have more integrated community outcomes and they tend to have um, more network into the social fabric of their their peer group and their community. And I think on some level, it's because they spent more time potentially in larger group ratios and in community-based contexts um, at the expense of perhaps being in another one-on-one session working to cure a particular deficit. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, you bring up some interesting points and part of what people are talking about is this idea of working towards normative behavior. 
So making sure that students aren't stimming or making the eye contact and making sure that students are doing more compliance and keeping their hands folded and hiding some of these very obvious behaviors. And I think there's now um, a push to understanding that um, echolalia can be very communicative and appropriately so. We have students that script appropriately to answer questions or communicate their needs. That stimming is a really important calming mechanism for Mm -hmm. folks. And if you take that away and make students their hands in their pockets so they're not shaking, you're really um, taking away an important tool for them. Um, And so I think that there's a shift in terms of not changing someone's behavior, but using what they have as tools and more functionally. Yeah. It's a really interesting, you know, evolution of understanding and people who work in schools have to be able to communicate um, with students and with parents on both channels almost at the same time, right? They have to be able to meet a parent who's very interested in a cure uh, analysis kind of approach and, and respond to that appropriately. And then at the same time, the next hour, go to a meeting with somebody for whom that's completely not their approach. And they're really looking at how to maximize their students' um, skills and, um, you know, kind of absorb some of them, maybe more socially stigmatizing behaviors, but certainly not um, eradicate them. And I think the linkage to the restraint issue is kind of clearer when you think about it this way, because if, uh, unless someone's being extremely self-injurious or other people injurious, you really don't have a big need for restraint if you're not trying to um, um, get rid of something uh, from a compliance approach. Right. And really trying to understand the function of that meltdown and helping the student move through it in a way that they are able to then deescalate calmly, safely, and communicate what they what they need for sure. Um, the other piece that I think is interesting, and I don't know, Abby, if this is like, too crazy to touch on, but this idea of ABA. Um, And so ABA used to be a methodology that people strongly advocated for. And when we were, I think, both in our beginning careers as administrators, we saw a lot of IEPs and um, a lot of outside evaluations requesting 50-week program with a certain amount of hours of ABA as the minimum approach of intervention. And we really, we worked very hard at the time to meet that standard. Um, But I think that has changed and people are using a more of eclectic approach because sometimes ABA can be thought of as teaching compliance. And it doesn't always, of course, have to be an ABA is just a, a methodology of really good, strong instructional practices. So I'm just curious what, what your stance on ABA is these days. And I've seen you and me interview um, teachers for our autism programs or BCBAs. And I know you love to ask that question about their philosophy on ABA, but what's yours? Right. Well, so I've always been an eclectic person so that I can't help it. That's my orientation to all of this work. And so I don't ever have a particular belief of a philosophy that I think is um, the only way to go. And I I think that that's um, because that's why I'm a special ed teacher, right? Is that if I thought that I would probably not have been drawn to kids for whom nothing worked exactly right. And you had to 
build their own program from scratch over and over and over again. So I think that's my honest opinion. What I would say is that public schools lend themselves very well to an eclectic model. And that used to be seen as a negative about public schools is that we weren't um, rigorous enough and, and uh, rigid enough. And I would argue exactly the opposite, that it's, it's our chaos and it's our amount of transitions and it's our amount of um, unexpectedness um, that with good instruction you have a once in a lifetime opportunity to practice those skills in a safe manner. And that's what you need when you're 25 and you're in an airport or you're at the RMV or you're at the emergency room. Right. And so every time we have like a fire drill, Robin, I'm psyched because it means that unexpectedly our friends are out in a thousand kids, you know, getting to learn how to be safe. Right. Even if it's uncomfortable and loud sometimes. So I think the eclectic approach has always been my my mantra. I've lived through the strict ABA years and being in a, a near a medical community, we were certainly inundated with a highly medical model for about a decade. And I've definitely seen that ebbing. Um, for some kids who are very good responders for especially learning new instruction via an ABA model, we certainly still provide it. And I think it has its place, but it isn't the totality of a single kids program in our district anymore, which I think is good. Yeah. And I agree. I don't see a lot of those recommendations anymore. I think the time on time of instruction um, has not shifted because we know some of our students really do need intensive um, programs with lots and lots and lots of opportunity for repetitions. So their days are longer, their years are longer and all of that makes a lot of sense to me. But I, I personally am also someone who loves an, an eclectic approach. And so I think the the shift has been to the student's benefit for sure. Yeah. And um, I think that if I could make an improvement going forward into the next year or two, I would say I'd love to mandate that every time we do like a three-year review, we do a preference assessment for every single kid. And we say like, what are you interested in? What do you really care about? What are you curious about? Um, because I do think we are still a very top-down adult-driven adult decision-maker model and um, often parents have a very strong voice, which is appropriate and they should, but they're not educators and certainly have sat in meetings where I'm trying to help someone understand that their kid being um, one-on-one all day long is not really a great thing that they probably shouldn't be like requesting that the last two hours of that kid's week that is in a small group turn into one-to-one because it's not in their best interest. And I think those are really interesting conversations among the adults. Well, I think that shifts us to some takeaways. And the biggest takeaway for me was to ensure that, again, and I'm working at the high school level, ensure that these young adults are strong advocates for themselves and are part of the conversation around what their programming should be, what their vision for themselves looks like, and how do we work towards that vision, even if it's different than what I think is best or what their family thinks is best. Like we're working on behalf of the student and asking them very clearly, what language would you like us to use when talking about you? How are you planning to, um, if at all, disclose to your employer or your future friends? And how can we help make that possible for you? What things in the environment do you need shifted feel more comfortable or be more independent? And how can we help you communicate and and get your needs met? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I I would also just add on the importance of language, right? That, that um, 
not being afraid or too nervous to just inquire of someone before you start a meeting, as you start a conversation, as the new year is rolling around and we're re-getting to know people, um, you know, how they would like to be um, talked with and talked about, which are two different things, written about, right? Think about all the paper we produce and how we talk about kids in paper format. And then also, I do think there's something to be said for looking particularly at our language when we're talking colleague to colleague without a person or a student with a disability um, part of the conversation, because often your real values are exposed when no one's listening, right? When you think no one's listening. And so uh, some of the language that I think historically in our field has been very, very damaging to people like someone's really low or um, he's super high, you know, uh, those kind of terms are really problematic for us in our mindset, not not even if you're not saying them in front of students. Well, and it's certainly, it enables us to make assumptions about people. If we say this person is very high functioning, then we're making a lot of assumptions about their abilities and people have lots of strengths and weaknesses and someone can be very high functioning in one way and need a lot of support in another way. And so I think really, again, the message is understanding that everyone has strengths and weaknesses and defining them as high or low pigeonholes us as instructors because then we're just focusing on 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 one thing or we're not maybe keeping our expectations high enough for them. Um, so that's that's important. Yeah, and you know, think about. you're a good example to me because we've had a lot of students who uh, don't use verbal speech to communicate. And it's always nice when I, when I think of team meetings and meetings we've had with parents where rather than saying, oh, that person's nonverbal, right? You've taken time to say, this student uses blank, 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 and blank to communicate. And I don't know about you, but certainly for many of the students we have who use alternate and augmentative ways to communicate, I forgot entirely that they don't speak. Like, I feel like I'm in conversation with them 100% year over year, day over day, right? Like, it doesn't feel to me that they are not communicating in any way. In fact, it's easier to know what they want sometimes because it's really clear. And so I... uh, I just think that's cool. And I, I encourage more people to think about that as, as we go back into the school year in the fall and we're making new relationships with kids and families. I love that. And a takeaway could also be that I think it's becoming more and more um, normative to um, ask people their pronouns or to put your pronouns in your emails and things like that. And it may be something that you want to also ask our, our folks with, with disabilities, like people first, first identity first language, and maybe start having those conversations um, with our students to, to hear how they feel about this. Absolutely. And I guess anything that broadly speaking helps a student to be more independent more autonomous and um, leave special ed with more skills uh, is kind of why I get up every morning and go to work. So I would say there are a lot of people listening to this who will say that's how why I go to work too. And I think that's the, the goal. So I think it's a good conversation and food for thought for sure. So we appreciate that we were provided with this article. This was a fun topic to talk about. And it gave us something new to consider as well. And so, again, if you listeners out there have anything that you want us to read or talk about or comment on, send it um, to us via email and um, we will address it. But Abby, as always, great to talk to you. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.